The views expressed in this episode are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent or reflect the views of Winnebago County or the Illinois 17th Judicial Circuit Court. In this episode, I speak with Jessica Gregg, licensed clinical social worker and clinical supervisor for Bright Point. This is Lori Youngblood. I'm here with Jessica Gregg, licensed clinical social worker and clinical supervisor at Bright Point, formerly known as Children's Home and Aid. Um, Jessica, I really want to welcome you to the podcast. And can you introduce yourself with your title, your position, and can you explain your credentials? Hi, good morning. Uh, So I'm Jessica Gregg. I am a licensed clinical social worker. I have my master's in social work. I'm a clinical supervisor at Bright Point, formerly known as Children's Home and Aid. And I am specifically a clinical supervisor in our child welfare clinical services program. So I specifically work with children and families involved in child welfare, meaning foster care. Can you elaborate a little bit on your role as a clinical supervisor, do you work directly or are you overseeing um, other coworkers, peers, things like that? Mm -hmm. So I oversee a team of five therapists and I also do typically carry a small caseload. Um, I have worked providing clinical services for children and families for about 10 years. Um, Right now, though, I recently returned from maternity leave, so I don't currently have my own caseload, but I oversee a team of five therapists and they are then providing the direct services, excuse me, to our families involved in our programming. And then I also help provide, you know, clinical suggestions, clinical feedback recommendations to our case management staff as well. Can you explain a little bit what Bright Point, formerly known as um, Children's Home and Aid, what do they do? Because I think that'll help guide the next like round of questions for me. Yeah, absolutely. So Bright Point, formerly known as Children's Home and Aid, is a statewide agency throughout the state of Illinois. And we historically have been an agency very heavily focused on child welfare, largely foster care. So when a children, a child or children are needed to be removed from the home, they need somewhere safe to go, providing a respite home, a foster home. Uh, that's been our our probably biggest area of work, but we also have a lot of different programming. So statewide, we have several crisis nurseries. We have one locally here in Rockford, Mother House, um, where we are able to provide childcare. We're able to provide services and support for families. Uh, we also have early childhood programming. We have really quite a, a wide range of services, and in each region of the state, we also have different mental health programming as well. When you're talking about foster care, how do you, um, how are you separated or how do you work with DCFS? Sure. So DCFS contracts, well, DCFS has uh, their own licensed homes, but largely they would contract with agencies like Bright Point um, so that Bright Point then has their own licensed homes. They manage our, our their own homes and provide their own kind of internal support services contracted with DCFS. So then through the court process, our agency and our workers will be also collaborating with DCFS as we are working the return home goal, working the, the service plan for each case. DCFS does also manage some of their own homes and cases, but quite a few are contracted out to agencies like Bright Point. 
And that makes total sense because it would just be an overwhelming system as well. It tends to still be an overwhelming system just because it's it's the nature of those system as it is currently established. But yeah, it, it definitely helps. I think it helps mostly the families directly involved, the both the caregivers as the foster parents, but also uh, the parents themselves. When you're working with a smaller agency, it it's a, a more direct line. Um, DCFS is just a, a much bigger system, but then working with a smaller agency breaks that down a little bit. For example, Brightpoint, we have therapists on staff. So mm-hmm. we, the, as that's my team and as myself as a clinical supervisor, we're able to participate, for example, in child and family team meetings, which occur as the case continues to progress, as they're working their service plan, but the parents can work directly with the staff, with the therapists, um, caregivers, the foster parents are also able to work directly with the staff. And it just expedites the process. It really helps families continue to move through the healing process and reach their goals and um, hopefully feel much more supported along the way. Um. When you're talking about working with the foster families and the, do do you refer to them as like the biological parents? So historically, yes. Okay. Uh, Typically, that is how we would sort of delineate. We would say bio parents, birth parents. Um, Sometimes kids in the system will even say, oh, my real parents. Um, But we're really trying to move away from that labeling language, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Kids need a better way to sort of make sense of things. You know, foster parents or caregivers are still real parents. They're Mm -hmm. still caring for those children in very real, real ways. However, um, the parents are the parents, and we don't need to add a qualifier of being a birth parent, a biological parent. Um, so that's at least at Bright Point. One, some of the things that we're doing is really trying to really get into the nuances of the system. And it may sound really small to even just change the language that we use, but it makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. So for my purposes, as I'll be talking today, if I say parents, I am meaning the parents of the children involved in the system. And if I say caregivers, I mean the foster parents. Okay. I'm glad that you deciphered that. So Brightpoint works with caregivers and the parents. And then how how does Brightpoint work with the kids? So Brightpoint provides direct clinical services internally, and we will also contract with external service providers as needed. Um, So that would be other therapists in the area. Um, However, for our purposes in the northern region, meaning Rockford, um, a lot of our children are served by my program. So we provide direct therapy services as well as so that would be individual and family therapy depending on the status of the case, depending on the child's needs, we will either be doing direct individual with the child or bringing in the parents or the caregivers for family therapy, sometimes both. Okay. Um, How are kids involved with the juvenile justice system? How are they referred to your services? Is it just within the delinquency court, is it with abuse and neglect? Like, how do they get involved with Bright Point? So, it, 
It can depend. Um, for my direct program, if we have a child involved in juvenile justice, we're likely getting the referral internally. So that would be one of our caseworkers has referred to our program. Um, we also have other mental health programming at Bright Point um, that's more community-based. So they may also have um, youth who are involved in the juvenile justice system, and those referrals may come from the schools. So school social worker, um, it could come even from a doctor's office. It could also come from the juvenile justice system itself. So a case manager, um, you know, some in the court system. Um, but I will also say that there's quite a lot of barriers to treatment in the juvenile justice system. I think that could almost be an entire conversation in and of itself. Um, but it's it's easy for children to slip through the cracks when there's so many different systems involved. So, mm -hmm. for example, if I have a youth, a teenager who is involved in child welfare with Bright Point because he's been removed from the home and placed into a foster home, we may be involved with that case and we may be getting a referral. However, maybe the caseworker was going to do that referral started talking to me about doing the referral, and maybe I think I'm waiting for paperwork. But then there's turnover with the caseworker because, unfortunately, that happens at a pretty high rate in juvenile justice systems, in these social welfare kinds of systems. So maybe the caseworker leaves before the referral is put in. Same thing in the juvenile justice setting. So maybe the case gets transferred to a different manager, maybe... The juvenile is, you know, incarcerated for some time and then released at, you know, who is, you know, responsible for that division of labor and that system of putting in a referral for mental health care that can get kind of lost in the mix. And then the other issue is who would be providing the services? So is it funded by insurance? And then if it is funded by insurance, which insurance, Medicaid or private insurance, mm -hmm. for example, Bright Point typically only charges Medicaid, so we can only bill Medicaid, we can only accept Medicaid. We do have some grant-funded programs where that's irrelevant, we don't need to worry about that. But then if it's a private agency, they may only accept private insurance. Mm -hmm. So who provides those services? How do you navigate that? Are there wait lists? And then again, it circles back to that original issue of the turnover of falling through the cracks. If a child is on a wait list, somebody else, a caseworker somewhere in the system is managing that, watching that, they leave, then somebody else takes on the case. They may not know where this child was at on a wait list. That's actually something that um, Governor Pritzker is working on. He started an initiative to overhaul the mental health system in Illinois. So again, that's a bit of a larger topic, but something that I think in particular we really need to do better on. You mentioned um, like Bright Point only accepts Medicaid. Is that the barrier you're, you're speaking of or is it getting the child to Bright Point, the facility in the first place? Um, what are some of the barriers that maybe we should be aware of? So it could be Medicaid coverage. Um, so for example, when a child is placed into foster care, they are automatically provided Medicaid coverage. However, then say the child is returned home, um, that Medicaid coverage will only be extended a certain amount of time mm -hmm. post reunification. And then the caregiver has to navigate not only now having the child returned home to them, which is a challenge, right? It, adjusting to, again, being the primary caregiver 
and then they have to obtain their own insurance coverage or conversely um, at adoption if if a child is not able to be reunified and they're adopted then again that Medicaid coverage ends and um, the adoptive parent typically adds them to their insurance so it's just a really tricky piece Um, but then also yeah transportation are these families able to bring them to the agency? Um, we do provide quite a lot of in-home services, mm-hmm. but then again, do we have a safe, confidential space for the child to speak freely, to engage freely, um, to to even safely engage if they need to discuss perhaps something that's happening in the home? Are they able to do that? We also go to the schools. But again, do we have a safe, confidential space that the school doesn't need to be using? Um, it's a it's can be really challenging trying to find a a location and a way for the children to fully engage. I have to take a pause there because that's a lot for a child because you have to find a spot where they are safe and it's secure and they can be very transparent or as honest as. They have the vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about how trauma impacts children? Because they're being, I want to replace this word. It's not taken. Their parents aren't taking care of them. A caregiver's taking care of them because it's been deemed that some form of trauma has occurred. It's not a safe space. Okay, um, how how does this trauma right there impact the children? And then how does maybe my next question would be a follow up from that. So, yeah. well, so to sort of start from the beginning of your question, I think it's important to define what are we talking about when we say trauma? So classically, when you say trauma, people most often think of a big event, sort mm-hmm. of a capital T, big T trauma. So, you know, 20 years ago, that was maybe a soldier who had gone to war and was deployed, right? That was sort of everyone's first understanding of, of, oh, a bad thing has happened that's going to impact you. It's a little more tangible. Exactly. Much more tangible. And so then we slowly started to apply that to children. But we are still looking at the big T trauma. So physical abuse, sexual abuse, domestic violence, right? Things that we could easily identify define and say, yeah, that would be hard. That would be very difficult. But when I am talking about trauma, I am talking about a really wide range of events. And there is a sort of classical definition from SAMHSA that is an event or an experience or a series of events that presents either a real or a perceived risk of safety Um, a real or perceived threat to one's well-being, and it could be in any area of their well-being. So physical wellness, mental wellness, emotional wellness. It's, It's a very real threat. The way that I like to think about trauma is anything that overwhelms a person's ability to cope with their circumstances. And that, I think, allows quite a few more things to be considered, which is, I think, going to be important for our conversation today. So I'm also going to be then considering things that you might say are a small T trauma. So 
something like divorce, something like being removed from the home, something like a caregiver who is absent, whether they are perhaps unavailable because they're working multiple jobs um, and they do not mean for that to be traumatic, but that is unfortunately what they need to be doing. But it could also be a parent who has substance abuse problems, who has mental health problems. Um, so any of those things create an experience that, for example, a three-year-old would not be able to cope with on their own. It would overwhelm their ability to function. And that is traumatic. And although I just labeled a couple things as small t trauma, I also want to emphasize that I'm not really the one who should be defining that. I like to say it that way because it helps us really sit back and consider what all do we need to be looking at. But it really depends on how the individual experiences that circumstance. So divorce, for example, could absolutely be a big T trauma mm -hmm. for somebody. Um you know, bullying, that's something that a lot of people disregard pretty quickly, but that could be both a small T and a big T trauma for somebody. So, um, and all of these circumstances really combine. Um, so for my purposes in my program specifically, because I'm working with children involved in child welfare, I'm really looking at complex childhood trauma. So what I mean by that is some big T traumas, the classical sort of things, a lot of small t traumas. And it's a really wide range that occurs at a wide range of child development. Um, and it impacts a lot of different things, which I know we'll get into. But I just wanted to really make sure that we're defining it clearly, because especially in the juvenile justice system, mm -hmm. you will see children who have experienced complex traumas, a lot of different forms and variations of traumas throughout their life. So the big T trauma is kind of like the tangible trauma and then like the little T trauma is kind of like the indirect consequences of something happening to mm -hmm. someone else that kind of gets um, like spread out yes. to others within that system. Yes. So then you asked how does trauma affect children and the basic answer is in every way um, with everything. So to really think about how trauma impacts children, the first step is to sort of put it into context of child development. Mm -hmm. Because again, historically, we started with adults in considering trauma and we were applying, you know, trauma with an adult brain. So a soldier is able to go to war and fully cognitively process and identify what they're doing. I'm going to war. This is a risk. This is a safety zone. It is absolutely still very, very traumatic, but they're also able to sort of cognitively process that. A child, however, does not have a fully functioning system for anything. They don't have a fully functioning nervous system. Their brains are not fully developed. They're learning every day as they go. So then when these traumas occur, they're going to freeze or even end development in that one area. So it really depends on the age and stage that a trauma occurs. And this means this applies to big T trauma or small T trauma. Um, so for example, um, you know, you might have a four-year-old who experiences physical abuse, neglect, parental substance abuse, um, that's quite a few things happening in those very early years, zero to four. So what happens ages zero to four? They learn gross motor skills. They learn fine motor skills. They learn emotional identif 
identification, expression, regulation, and attachment. So if they have a caregiver who is actively abusive, they will not form a safe, healthy, secure attachment. They will not learn how to regulate their bodies. They won't even learn physical awareness, spatial awareness. So if you think about how how do you walk from point A to point B, directly in a linear way, mm-hmm. right? A child is not going to learn that in a chaotic, unsafe environment. So you'll actually see children who need services like occupational therapy because even their gross motor skills are delayed. And that's because there wasn't a safe, secure adult or caregiver present to help them even in those really early years. But that's not something that a lot of people consider when they're talking about trauma impacting children. So then you also have this child who, because their caregiver was abusive, they do not know how to form a safe, healthy, secure attachment with adults. And then they're about to enter preschool, right? Four years old, they're going to be entering preschool, kindergarten, and adults are not safe people. So then you're going to see a really wide range of areas impacted relationships, attachment, problem solving, behaviors, regulation. Any way that a child could be moving through the world, it's going to be impacted by trauma. I just need to pause for a minute because that's a lot. Um, with the de- developmental delays, do we want? Do you want it labeled that way, or do you want to say like, um, like, not? How do you word that? I guess I'm so sorry. Well, so actually, I think the way that you're struggling with it is a really great example of the state of our mental health treatment system. And I'll explain what I mean. So there actually isn't a diagnosis in the DSM for what is going on for that little four-year-old in the in my example. there A diagnosis does not exist. That is a billable code. Um, so actually, I'll reference the work of Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. He submitted a diagnosis um, to be considered in the most recent version of the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Diagnosing. Um, it's what we use, right, to reference back for um, any mental health code. Um, so he submitted a, a diagnosis of developmental trauma. Um, to be able to capture, right, what that means. And it was uh, rejected and it's not a current diagnosis. But you will see people talk about this is a child with complex developmental trauma. So that's the phrasing um, and that's sort of the unofficial diagnosis that one might use. But because we don't have a clear diagnosis, we are sending these children out into the world and they are getting diagnosed with things like ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder, conduct disorder, um, mood disorders. And those things may be co-occurring, but what's really happening is the signs and symptoms of childhood trauma. And we don't have a great way to label it, to diagnosis, or to treat it. And that's, you know, so the way that you're struggling with it, that's sort of the entire mental health system right now is what, 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 what is this? What are we looking at? Um, and it's really, really challenging. Um, another key leader in this area is Dr. Bruce Perry, 
So he has books um, written, uh, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, What Happened to You, which he co-wrote with Oprah. Um, and he has a um, method of treatment, um, neurosequential method of therapeutics, which actually creates a brain map. And it assesses the ages and stages that children experience trauma, the level of severity, as well as any protective factors that were present at the time. And what he is trying to do with that work is to really get a picture what's happening in each child's brain, what's going on, what are the needs because of the traumas that they experienced, and then prescribing different treatments accordingly. Um, because we really don't have a better way of, of, you know, capturing what you were just struggling with, because it's so much, and we have to do better, we have to treat that. But where do you start? Where do you begin? Yeah. And I'm so glad you saw my my struggle and you just, you stopped and you kind of helped me through it because I think the thing is, is like whatever was, I don't want to use a word that's not diagnostic, I guess, but that developmental trauma between like zero and four years, do does a child just kind of like skip over that gap and then they start developing then what they would develop between five in nine years or is it something where that even delays what they are able to do from Mm -hmm. five to nine years if that makes sense like going forward it does it absolutely makes sense so there's two concepts that you're really talking about there so one concept is biological relativity and that is again from dr perry's work and that is basically saying that at whatever stage development occurs uh, and the the more rapid of development is occurring the higher the impact of trauma is going to be so that is sort of the easiest way to understand that is my original example of the adult as a soldier versus a child right a child is going to be much more impacted by trauma because they're still ongoing rapid development. So that's biological relativity versus an adult fully functioning. They have a fully functioning system and then they experience trauma. That doesn't mean that one is more traumatic than the other, but it does mean that the impact is going to be different. Mm -hmm. So then the other concept is the sequential development and the brain develops in a sequential way, building on the foundation of whatever came beforehand. So if the way to think about it is you have a series of blocks and hypothetically, everybody gets the same series of blocks available to them when they're born. And you're going to use those blocks to build a pyramid. And let's say everybody gets red blocks for the first row, orange, yellow, right? We'll use you use a rainbow example. However, on the left hand, you have a child with normative development. Their red blocks are all really nice and neat in a row, right? No gaps, no holes, perfect foundation. On the right, you have my poor little four-year-old who grew up in a chaotic, neglectful, abusive environment. He has all of those same red blocks, but they are not in a nice row. They're going to be missing gaps. They're going to be not filled in all the way. They're jumbled. They're not in a nice row. Or some may have been shoved to the side. For example, an attachment block, right? He did not have a safe, secure adult. So he is not even using his blocks. He has them. They're there. They are not part of his foundation. So he's not using them. So then we get to the next row, right? We are learning that the world is either safe or unsafe. Orange rows. Mm -hmm. Again, child on my left, safe, healthy, secure attachment. 
strong foundation, we're easily moving up row after row. For my poor little guy on the right, he is now trying to put those orange blocks and he's kind of shoving them in between the red blocks because there's gaps and we have to put something there if we're going to try to move on, but they don't really fit. They don't really work, but that's how that child on the right, the four-year-old with severe complex childhood trauma is going to build. He's going to put blocks where they don't really work they don't match, but they help him survive. They mm -hmm. help him continue to move through the world. But each row, each layer is going to be very unstable. It's not going to work as intended. And that's where we start to see a lot of the symptomology because it's not working. All the same blocks, they're all there, but they're not built in the right order. So they're not functioning the same way that they should be. I think this analogy is really great for like the next question is how can, how are symptoms presented in a child, signs and symptoms? Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure someone that's trained, it's pretty clear, but like, I mean, I don't want to say, we don't want to think our immediate family might be experiencing things like that or like close friends, but what is some signs and symptoms I think people not in this work can understand. Yeah, so that's part of the challenge as well because it can present like a lot of different things. So earlier I referenced that they will be diagnosed with ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder, uh, reactive attachment disorder is another disorder that they may be diagnosed with. And that's because we'll start to see symptoms like inattentiveness, um, hyperactivity, defiance, um, High levels of emotional and physical dysregulation. Uh, there can be some physical delays as well. So those gross motor skills that I was talking about, right? Is is somebody helping and encouraging a child to crawl and walk in a safe, healthy way? Um, so we'll start to see delays in each of those areas. One of the things that I talk to um, both staff on my team as well as case managers is really considering you know, what's driving that behavior? What's underneath the behavior? ADHD, that is, you know, uh, their brain does truly function in different ways. There are some assistance strategies, medications, for example. But if it is being driven by trauma, that's very, very different. So let's take my four-year-old who with, um, again, that chaotic abusive environment. Is he going to be able to focus in a preschool classroom when he's never developed that school at that skill, excuse me, at home. No, he wouldn't, he won't stand a chance in a traditional classroom environment. So he could present as a kid who does not understand how to sit still during carpet time. He does not understand how to appropriately engage with his peers because he didn't learn pro-social behaviors at home. Mm -hmm. He may be aggressive and hitting his peers because he's learned that behavior at home. That's his only way of communication. He may be speech delayed because nobody is engaging him in a meaningful way at home. He may have a lot of difficulty accepting regulation. And that's important because children really need adults, right, to regulate. We often have inappropriate expectations of children that they can sort of manage their stuff on their own. But truly, they need a safe, healthy, secure adult to help them through those moments. Um, you know, for example, we joke about toddlers being the terrible twos, right? Well, why is that so terrible? 
because in, you know, their world, they're learning, oh, I can walk, I can talk, I can do things, I can get stuff. But wait, you're telling me I can't just grab food from the refrigerator mm-hmm. on my own? That's so unfair. And so they have these meltdowns, right? Because they don't, they're learning that there are limits to their world. Little hearts, big emotions. Exactly. I've always heard that. Yes. So really, really big emotions. Now, that little kid on my left with the healthy development, they will have a safe, healthy, secure attachment adult to help them regulate that you know in fact you will survive this moment when you didn't get your blue cup and you have to use a green cup instead it'll be okay it's okay your feelings are valid little two-year-old and they'll move through that and they'll learn that they can manage and overcome obstacles my little guy on the right did not ever have that right so he was being mistreated he was never being engaged he was you know, maybe given what he wanted, maybe not. He absolutely did not ever have a safe, healthy, secure attachment to regulate through that moment. So then he's not going to know to go to a teacher when he's upset. He's not going to know that when a peer is using the toy that he wants to use, that he can survive that moment. Mm -hmm. That moment will feel completely unmanageable to him because he never had the experience that the child on the left did. And his teachers then will be befuddled, perplexed. I don't know how to engage this child. He shoves me away when I try to comfort him. And that's because he's never had that. He doesn't even know that that's a safe thing. So that's what I mean by accepting regulation as well. So he's just going to be kind of a bit of a mess because he does not know how to experience a safe, secure world. It's all new and frankly dangerous because he doesn't know what will happen. He doesn't know what that will mean for him. And he knows that in his his world, he gets hurt. It's very primordial, the way you're describing it, like the reaction and the way these four-year-olds or the the hypothetical four-year-olds moving Mm -hmm. about in this world is like very primordial survival. Yeah. So I actually really love that you picked up on that because... If you think about the brain, which sometimes the neurological impact can be a little bit tricky to navigate Mm -hmm. because it's, you know, the brain and it's very complex, but um, it is primordial. So if you think about the child that I was just describing, they're really largely reacting out of the bottom part of their brain. So the brain stem, the limbic system, um, the very lowest part of your brain, that is the oldest part of your brain. It's the first part of your brain to develop. It's the part of our brain that we share with other, you know, animals, other creatures. Um, some people call that actually the rap- reptile brain because reptiles have that same um areas of the brain, but you wouldn't necessarily call them like right, very evolved creatures versus the upper parts of your brain. Some people call that the mammalian brain, excuse me. Um, But it's that's where our higher kind of functioning areas come from. So emotional reasoning, processing, problem solving things that, you know, like monkeys, animals, dogs can problem solve, right? humans as well because we have that part of the brain but when you are looking at children who have experienced traumas they are reacting almost exclusively out of the lower parts of the brain Mm -hmm. so the areas of the brain that control stress responses that control stress hormones because that's the survival part of the brain like you keyed in on that they're they're in survival mode and again that's what makes it really really challenging for these kids to go out and navigate the world because what happens in the brain, you know, we may typically go throughout our day, we'll be experiencing input, sensory input, output, we'll process it, make a decision, right? Do I wear blue or red today? And we're processing it 
in seconds, milliseconds, right? And we just move about our day. As we go through our day, we may experience something that is dangerous, right? Oh, a car is coming over, right? You don't have time to stop and process that a car is coming into your lane. So you're going to slam on the brakes. You're going to react automatically. It wasn't a conscious decision that you made to slam on their brakes, but you've learned, right? Your brain has learned how to adapt in that moment. And it's a survival strategy. Once that moment passes, you calm back down. You, the rest of your system comes up back online, you know, meaning the upper part of your brain. And you can problem solve, okay, wait, how do I get to the McDonald's that I'm trying to get mm-hmm. to? And you can, you know, redirect, right? But for children living and developing, because again, we're thinking of our poor little guy with all these miscolored blocks and in all the wrong places, he's developing in that environment where only his stress system is activated. Mm-hmm. So he never has time to sit back and, and process and problem solve, figure it out on his own. He's only ever reacting out of a stress response. And again, how I talked about Each child is going to get the same amount of blocks, but some are going to be shoved to the side. He's shoved a lot of blocks to the side because they're not the blocks that keep him alive, right? They're not the blocks that keep him safe. So then even when he's in an environment where he he could be using those blocks, he's not going to reach for them because his brain doesn't know to reach for them. His brain doesn't know that it's a safe environment to let go of those stress hormones. That The brain probably doesn't remember that they're there or that it's a Mm -hmm. possibility. Mm -hmm. The brain has no way of distinguishing that the child is in a safe, healthy environment until it learns and experiences new things. It will only ever know this is unsafe and we are unsafe and we have to survive. Thank you so much for explaining that. Um, And I like the way that you explained it too. It's, It's very like manageable. Um, can we, um, talk a little bit about how the exposure to violence in the home impacts kids? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, just generally speaking, we know that research shows that violence in the home predisposes children to more aggressive behaviors, um, more aggressive responses to violence in their own relationships as they get older. Um, That's a combination of learned behavioral responses as well as this complex trauma. Um, But again, it will be a very similar impact to sort of the things that I was talking about, right? That their home is unsafe. The relationships are unsafe. Their caregivers are unsafe. Um, They may have a protective factor of the parent who is perhaps being abused, Um, It depends on the capacity of that parent and the resourcing that they have, both internal and external. Um, But violence in the home is going to result in all of the same developmental impacts that we've been talking about, especially depending on the age and stage that the child is in when that violence is occurring. Is it occurring in one, you know, kind of ongoing relationship or is it multiple partners, which would then reinforce, again, this idea that every adult is unsafe. There are no safe people. Um, It's going to impact relationships. It's going to impact, you know, how they may view, the child may view themselves, even perhaps in a gender role, Mm. how they view relationship Mm. dynamics, how they view what is defined as love, what is defined as healthy, nurturing behaviors from a caregiver. It will impact all of those things. 
when you say gender roles, are you saying like um, certain genders are more submissive and other genders are more dominant? Mm -hmm. Yes. So I don't want to to diminish the very real fact that there are men who are in abusive relationships, LGBTQIA plus relationships that have very different gender norm, but in a sort of heteronormative way. Um, And statistically speaking, the majority of abuse victims are women. um, And then they are in those positions with, you know, heteronormative relationships with men. So, that can reinforce for the child who's developing. If it's a boy in that environment, then they're seeing and learning that that is how they, as a boy, as a man, should navigate relationships and should navigate the world. Okay. Thank you for clarifying. Mm-hmm. Um, we're really focusing on an example with one child and what one child may experience with um, like two partners in the home mm-hmm. and the delays there. How does that change if there's an older sibling or a younger sibling or both? Uh, So it really depends. And that can kind of dip into sort of the million dollar question. You know, why does one child experience things differently? And what makes one child perhaps resilient in a way that another child is not? Um, Oh, I'm not remembering her name right now. So my apologies. But there's a book, The Glass House. Um, I believe they also made a movie about it. And um, in in that, you know, there's some siblings who experienced, right, the very same kind of chaotic environments. Some siblings did okay, right, quote, unquote, um, you know, were successful in life. Um, Other siblings really, really struggled and experienced things like addiction and homelessness. Um, So it, it... it's really difficult to say how that would change for an older child versus a younger child um, or how those dynamics might change. Um, There's a lot of different ways it could go. What I would say is to apply those sort of same concepts that we've been talking about. So biological relativity, for example, let's say in a different example, there were children who, you know, set of three siblings who had a healthy relationship with their mother, absent father though, but their relationship with their mother was good, um, lower socioeconomic status. So some instability, right? Some high stress in the home because of that, but generally we're doing well. Then mom has a new partner who is abusive. For our purposes, let's say we have a 14-year-old, eight-year-old and a three-year-old right? The 14-year-old has a higher functioning system and is going to react differently. Um, They are able to do, generally able to do what we would describe as self-protect. So they could maybe even physically engage, which is a whole other trauma responsibility of being responsible suddenly for the safety in the home. Um, But they could also disclose things to their school, right? They may be more outspoken. Mm -hmm. They could then become even more of a target for, unfortunately, the abuse, depending on what's happening. Um, But they will experience that in a way that they could hypothetically do something about it. They do have some power and agency in that situation. 
the eight-year-old is right on the cusp, right? Hypothetically, they could self-protect. They could disclose to a teacher, but they may also very much experience it as being still unsafe. The three-year-old has no ability to self-protect and will be far more impacted than the, well, their system, I should say, right? Thinking about a developmental system of a child, their system will be far more impacted than that of their 14-year-old sibling. They may be protected by their 14-year-old, right? Maybe that 14-year-old becomes a protective factor for the three-year-old. So, But it can really go in a lot of different ways. But the biological relativity concept would say that the three-year-old would be far more impacted than the 14-year-old. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, you you mentioned a phrase that um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I find it really annoying. Um, kids are resilient. <laughs> Meaning, like, you can expose them to whatever and they'll get over it. Mm-hmm. Um, can you kind of explain a little bit maybe why that phrase is probably not the best phrase to be using? Yeah. So what I would say is kids, I struggle because I also want to say kids are resilient, right? That's sort of my our brand of saying we can treat it, right? We can do something about it. It gives hope. It does give hope. And so I do want to say kids can be resilient. Um, Some kids do possess sort of an innate um, resiliency in that, right? Even in healthy normative development systems, right? For example, my oldest six-year-old, she has anxiety. She struggles with different things that my son, who grew up in the exact same system, he's only, he's almost four. So he, you know, hasn't experienced, you know, stressors like kindergarten, right? But he is, you know, goes in all in, he's ready to go, you know, no matter the situation. So same exact developmental experiences, right? Very, very different capacities for stress. Um, so there's th- those examples, right, where kids just sort of innately have different personality traits mm-hmm. that allow them to tolerate other things. Um, but again, for kids who are experiencing complex developmental trauma, at some point, their capacity, their resiliency is overwhelmed by the traumas that they're experiencing. Um, but what I want to focus on is where the resiliency really comes from is that they all have the capacity, right? Right. Every child truly has the capacity to recover, to learn, to heal, right? Like I've said with my little guy on the right, we still had all of those blocks. Mm -hmm. We shoved them to the side, but we still have those blocks. But in order to really promote resiliency, we need to have the right resourcing in place. So we need to have external resourcing. And what I mean by that is services. I mean, caregivers who understand and can engage in a meaningful and trauma-informed way. We need to have systems that promote resiliency. Um, Currently, most of our systems are very reactive, Mm -hmm. right? They're very punitive. Um, where things are seen as bad, that they need a punishment, right? They need to be stopped, managed. Um, That doesn't really build or foster resiliency, right? That doesn't create opportunities for healing or recovery. Um, but, But so when I think of resiliency, I really think of capacity, of potential, right? But again, we need resourcing, we need support, um, 
that feels a little bit hopeless <laughs> as I'm saying it out loud, but it, I, it, it, every child truly can find their place, can find their way again, but we have to provide the resourcing for them to tap into their resiliency. We need effective treatment. We need trauma-specific evidence-based treatment, and we need trauma-informed systems. As a person who's not a part of this system and would be more of a supporter, can you just touch a little bit on what trauma-informed um, therapy would be in a nut, like not in a nutshell, but like give kind of a basic overview of what that would look like? Mm-hmm. So right now, truthfully, trauma is kind of a hot topic, right? And it, it has sort of become something where we know both a lot about and not enough. So what I see right now in the systems is people sort of labeling, oh, they've experienced trauma. They've experienced trauma. But then what do we do? And I think that's really what you're talking about. So what we really need to be doing is making sure that, for example, our service providers in the area are informed and trained, not just in what trauma is, in, you know, sort of like defining trauma, but really truly what it looks like and what it looks like in practice. Then we need to be providing trauma-specific diagnoses and trauma-specific treatments. So evidence-based treatments like trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, if it's a very young child using evidence-based play therapy treatments, right? That's um, kind of historically speaking, again, we've taken these adult concepts and then just applied them to children, right? That's what we've done with trauma. You know, we started with a soldier who went to war and then we just sort of, you know, mushed it and identified that children sort of experience the same thing, but we don't have, like I said earlier, that child-specific trauma diagnosis. Um, so there's a lot of treatments that have started for adults and then been modified for children. So for example, EMDR is a very mm -hmm. common trauma treatment for adults, and that has been modified for children. Doesn't necessarily, you know, it wasn't child-specific, right? I'm not saying it, it is evidence-based, but I personally prefer looking for very specific child treatments. So child-centered play therapy, Santray, TheraPlay, treatments that were really designed for children and are evidence-based to also treat the impact of trauma. Um, so we really need to be making sure that our service providers are trained in those treatments, you know, helping to educate parents um, you know, what should you be looking for in a service provider? What are you looking for for your child who's experienced this trauma? Um, and making sure that those evidence-based treatments are being used. And then in our systems, we need to be less reactive and providing more opportunities for recovery and restorative practices. So, for example, in the schools, right? If a child, so going back to my little four-year-old, he's in preschool, maybe in he's five, six, he's in kindergarten in the elementary school system, and he is really struggling, right? He's very reactive. He's hitting his peers, hitting his teacher. Um, what's the typical response? Suspension, mm -hmm. removal. Punishment. Punishment, right? But what does that do, right? Think back to his early years. He understands punishments. He understands he is a bad kid. He does not deserve good things because he's been punished his whole life. That's who he believes himself to be because that's what the world has taught him. So then every time he's removed from the classroom, 
every time he's suspended, every time he receives a punishment, that just reinforces that internal worldview and that internal self-view. He's bad and the world will only punish him. So why is he going to engage in a world any differently? Mm-hmm. But if we can create opportunities and have additional supports within our schools, which are already horrifically underfunded. And I do want to acknowledge that. But if we're able to provide additional funding and provide additional resourcing, so then that child can have moments of recovery. You know what, buddy? We had a really hard day. I'm so excited to see you tomorrow. And we're going to try again, right? A huge shift. Mm -hmm. Can we provide opportunities for recovery and restorative practices versus just punishment? Can we unlearn and reteach different skills, different messaging for these children? Um, Otherwise, we end up with teenagers, right, in the juvenile justice system and their whole worldview. I'm bad. I'm a bad kid. The world is only going to punish me. Watch me be bad. Mm -hmm. And, And it just... There's, there's not an opportunity for healing. It doesn't promote resiliency like I was talking about earlier. But if we can shift that, if we can shift that sort of traditional paradigm to a trauma-informed paradigm, recognize what's driving those behaviors, change our language, you know, from bad to struggling, having a hard day, manipulative to, yeah, that kid has learned how to get his needs met. Mm. How can we shift that? How can we shift that perspective, take a step back? Take a beat, right? And really look at what's driving those behaviors and then meet that. Don't don't address necessarily the behaviors, and I'm not excusing the behaviors, but address what's underneath it and then move forward from there. Yeah. And I'm glad you're just kind of mentioning the, you know, just the different phrasing of like, look, I know you've had a bad day. We'll try again tomorrow. Because I think sometimes when um, we we think of treatment just in general, it's a big impact. You know, mm-hmm. you need a knee replaced, so you have a surgery and you have a new knee. But when it comes to this type of um, rehabilitation, it's going to be small changes and it's not going to look like much. Yes. And it's going to take a lot of time. So it's not these big pendulum swings and it's not these like instantaneous results. It's mm-hmm. going to be, it's not going to look like much. Right. It won't look like much. And I think, you know, I want to acknowledge how exhausting that is, for example, for a teacher who's been at it all year, desperately trying to reach this child, right? It's really, really challenging. But if you think about, again, the block analogy, right? We have all the same blocks. They're all there. They are all jumbled up and messed up. Can we take the time to bring back in the blocks that we shoved aside? Absolutely. Can we take the time to reorganize and restructure those blocks? Absolutely. We have treatments for that. But it will take time. And it will look like the child who at the beginning of the year was having meltdowns, could not be touched, could not tolerate that, does not even want you to look at them to maybe at the end of the year, they're able to sit next to you and they're not going to push you away, right? That's that's what we're looking for. That's, you know, that's progress. That's big. Um, but it, it takes time. It takes so much time. And you have to be able to, you know, not internalize a lot of that as as a caregiver, right? As And I say as a caregiver, as a teacher, as a foster parent, as, you know, even, even a caseworker working in the system, you know, whether it's a juvenile justice or child welfare, right? They, they really build bonds with these children. And it can be really frustrating and really discouraging to be like, oh, we talked about this. Mm. 
you know, I'm also personally, I'm also a foster parent and um, my last foster daughter really struggled with lying, really struggled with a lot of behaviors because that was how she had learned to keep herself safe. Right. And I won't pretend like it wasn't super frustrating to have continual lies, continual like, honey, I I just saw you do this. Right. So it would be really easy. And I'll be honest, I got sucked into it sometimes, too. And to get into right a power struggle of like, no, I saw you do it. But if we, our best moments were the moments where I was able to take a step back and say, okay, I know you took that thing. When you're ready to talk about it, I'll be here. And we got to a point before she went to a a pre-adaptive home that she was able to be like, mommy, Jesse, I only lied to you two times. And then I told the truth. (laughs) And it's, you know, it's kind of funny and comical, but that was really big, Mm -hmm. right? She was able to even label the behavior that we were working on, right? Acknowledge that that wasn't great, but that she got to where we wanted to get to. And she was able to see her own progress. And we celebrated that, you know, and those, that's what I mean by moments of recovery and restorative options, right? She still did the behavior it was not excused but we were able to get through it and we were able to be like yeah you did it you you," and we celebrated those moments and that really built built felt safety that helped her learn to navigate that the world could be safe and i can engage in those pro-social goal behaviors because the world could be safe right we're not quite there should we still lie twice because it's a process and it takes time for her i mean and I, I just want to say this as like kind of just the general behavior. It's a defense mechanism mm-hmm. and it's what she used to work through it. Right. And each time she builds those skills or a child builds those skills. Um, I think sometimes we think, oh, they're not making progress because they're still doing the behavior. They're working through it and they're building those skills to maybe next time. Exactly. You know, the behavior happens less frequently mm-hmm. and less extreme to eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And again, not excusing any of those behaviors right. that occur along the way, but we're not sending the message that you're bad for those behaviors. We're not sending the message that I don't love you or you're unlovable because of those behaviors. It's okay. We're going to work through this and yeah. we're going to do it together. And I'm here with you. And it really, really makes a big difference. And the schools can do that as well. Right. Um, Again, they're not always fully resourced to do that. But if we can create moments like that, moments where a child can come back from doing something, you know, that was maybe dangerous, was was a problem, disruptive, defiant, whatever it was. But it, we have to have an opportunity to come back from that, right? We, we get to come back from hard things. Um, and we can say that as adults, right? But a child has to learn that Mm -hmm. and they have to be given the opportunities for that, which, again, does not always happen in child welfare or the juvenile justice system or our schools. Bringing up the juvenile justice system and the child welfare system, how does the involvement in those two impact kids? So as they're going through it, how Mm -hmm. does that impact them? It it can really impact them in a wide range, right? It can be another trauma. So for example, I know some kids may end up in foster care as a result of being involved in juvenile justice or um, truancy even can result in placement in foster care. So removals from caregivers, um, removals from their primary attachment figures, those are all traumas. There's no felt safety in any of those systems, right? At any moment, the judge could 
you know, make a decision and they're back in trouble. Um, child welfare, right? They could, these placements aren't permanent, so they can get rid of me at any time, right? So there's, you know, we need to think about safety, um, right? That can really help clarify this concept of how does that impact and where is that trauma lying? There's no safety there. And we know that we need safety, right? That's one of the primary human needs to move through the world and continue developing. Um, and there's that just doesn't exist in those systems. Okay. Um, why do juveniles commit crimes? Uh, so I saw that question and I, again, I think that could be an entirely other conversation. Um, but I guess the, the simplest way to sort of consider it is in, on one hand, what need is there? Are there actions, um, meeting, right? Is it a need for, um, their own confidence? Is it an emotional need, right? Are they trying to fit in with peers to achieve a semblance of felt safety with a, a group of peers that are perhaps accepting them in a way that maybe a family never has? Mm-hmm. Um, or are they stealing for a more basic need like shelter or food? Um, it, it could really be be any of those areas, right? Um is it a trauma response, right? Is it destruction of property because they are reacting to some intolerable circumstance? Um, but I also want to really bring us back to the neurological impact of trauma, right? I talked about the lower part of the brain mm-hmm. being the more active part of the brain. We do have the higher part of the brain. Um, and for a lot of these children, the higher part of their brain is either offline, right? If they're reacting out of a trauma response, that'll be the lower part of the brain, those stress hormones, or that that higher part of the brain just simply isn't developed. And we actually know that really the higher part of the brain, right? The prefrontal cortex, the cortex, the that is not fully functioning um, or developed until your mid-20s, mm-hmm. right? But then if you apply a child who's grown up in a traumatic environment, that development is even going to be further hindered. So you are not going to be having a child who is making sound problem-solving choices in general, right? Juveniles don't do a great job of that, right? Um, And then if you have a child who's grown up in a traumatic environment, Mm. those parts of their brain are quite literally not functioning. You know, thinking about... um, my original example of my four-year-old with the chaotic environment growing up, he's not going to then go into school and be able to sit down and do math problems, right? He's not going to be able to logically think things through like that because his brain, his resources are being used up wondering, is mom okay? Mm -hmm. Am I going to be okay? What's going to happen? Is dad going to be in a bad mood tonight? Will I be safe? What will I need to do, right? Those are the things that are going on in these children's brains. They're not going to be able to then take a beat and think, okay, this will be the consequences of my action if I engage in this behavior. But that's the expectation that our juvenile justice system has of them. They're expecting these children to, okay, well, you broke in, you stole a car, you were with these peers and you spray painted this building. They're expecting these children to be able to take a second logically think through the next series of events and what the possible consequences of their behaviors will be. And that is just simply not a cognitive skill that these kids have developed yet. 
it doesn't correlate with survival. It doesn't. It doesn't. It won't be a, a, you know, a primary goal. And if you think, you know, maybe this teenager feels like they need protection because their home environment isn't safe, their school environment isn't safe, they have to perhaps join a gang or, or engage in with a group of peers that will give them that semblance of felt safety. So then they have to spray paint the building. They have to do whatever is being dictated by this group so that they can be safe. And again, they're not going to be thinking about the potential consequences. They're thinking about what do I need to do to survive this moment. Mm -hmm. Can you touch a little bit on the ACES study? Sure. So the ACES study was really the original look into trauma and childhood trauma. So sort of, um, what started a lot of the work that I had referenced before. And the ACES is an adverse childhood experience um, survey. And basically the general idea is the number of, as the number of adverse childhood experiences increases that a person has experienced. So that would be divorce, removal from the home, death of a caregiver. As those numbers increase, then the impact of trauma and the lifetime impact. So adverse health experiences as an adult, addictions, mental health challenges, those, the risk of those all increases as well. Mm. Again, it's not a guarantee that doesn't um, mean that a child who experiences trauma is going to develop an addiction, is going to have all these same struggles, but it does increase the likelihood and the risk of that. It gives just kind of like a little awareness to keep mm-hmm. an eye out for. Absolutely. And like we've talked about, you know, the brain, the development, those things don't just go away, right? Yeah. It's a lifetime impact, a lifetime of healing and supports will be needed. As we're wrapping up our conversation, um, what do you wish people knew or like what stigmas would you like to be corrected? I think I would start with the child welfare system because we also know that the child welfare system is sort of like a funnel system into the juvenile justice system, oftentimes into the adult justice system. And I guess what I would want people to really understand is that these are not bad parents. They're not bad people and they're not bad kids. I really, I think I would like to see us being able to step away from that language. Mm -hmm. And again, ask the question that Dr. Perry asks in one of his books, what happened to you? What happened to you in your life? There's generational trauma, generational you know, physical trauma, racial trauma, mental health trauma that just gets perpetuated unless we provide resourcing to promote resiliency and break that cycle at some point for one of the children. But we also, you know, we're not going to break it completely, right? We're, we're going to be dealing with ongoing. So we have to not just provide resources for the child, but then when the child becomes an adult, mm-hmm. what resourcing are we providing for them as they become parents so that they don't continue this cycle? We, this system is again, reactionary. We tend to provide services in a very isolated way mm-hmm. at one point of a person's life. Um, But if we could shift that, if we could provide more wraparound lifetime supports that people can access to continue to heal, continue to shift and change and and really have a space where they're not viewed as bad people, where they're not viewed as bad parents because X, Y, Z happened, where they're not viewed as bad kids because they made bad choices and 
we're reacting and living in intolerable circumstances. But if we can look at what's driving them and hold out a hand and and continue to have moments of recovery and res- restoration mm-hmm. that we could really move forward and really start breaking those cycles. I'm glad that you mentioned um you know, it's not bad parents, it's not bad kids. Because I think what um, you're really describing in your work is this like bigger holistic generational work. And in that, you capture the child. And we have to remember that their parents were children just like they were. And so imagine you didn't capture that four-year-old at that point. And then he becomes a parent as Mm -hmm. well. You know, you just kind of capture that familial behavior at that point with that child in that generation. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. Right. If we can just find compassion and and empathy and give space, give space for them that is is not judgmental, right, is safe, and they can feel that safety. Mm-hmm. They can feel that acceptance, forgiveness, right? Mm-hmm. It, you know, that's what everybody wants in the world to just feel like they are okay for who they are. And if we could create a system that would do that, it would really shift things for a lot of people. But a lot of us mm-hmm. don't read the books and we don't <laughs> fully understand like how those um, developmental traumas um, mm-hmm. can affect in adulthood. Yes. And we don't always see it. Um, we've talked about some heavy things. Can I just ask you what you do for self-care? Uh. <laughs> or how you kind of make sure that um, you don't carry yes. some of this with you in your personal life. I laugh only because I think that's a question that I get asked every day at work. That's a question I ask my staff every day. And sometimes, you know, you almost say the word self-care so much that it sort of be- loses it's, its meaning. Yeah. yeah. Um, I... I, I will say that there's there's periods in my career where I have done better at not carrying it and other times that I haven't. Um, I have had times where I am working. I remember uh, actually early COVID that, um, you know, everybody shut down. So we're doing telehealth. So I'm working from home with my at the time I only had two children and I did an intake for a little one whose birthday was pretty close to one of my children whose physical appearance even was very close to one of my children and they had been severely physically abused and had um very intense trauma symptoms had a flashback even during my intake with them and I didn't have any time I didn't have any decompression time because I opened the door to the room that I was in in my house and my children were immediately there And uh, that was a really, really hard, hard week. Um, So I will say that, you know, I always, always have to take some time to just breathe and just hold space for for myself, hold Mm -hmm. space for the work and hold space for the people that I work with. And uh, then do the same thing for my staff where um, we just have to sometimes sit with what we're doing and and what has happened and sit in the heavy, right? And not necessarily move past it, but give it space to just be hard. And then, you know, what are we feeling? What are we experiencing? How, where am I feeling it in my body? 
And that's then where I'm able to engage in self-care. So I uh, garden. I That's a very tactile, you know, kind mm-hmm. of sensory processing. And it's also very satisfying. Um, going for walks, that's bilateral stimulation in the brain, which is very regulating. Um, and just trying to move my body. But I also really seem to channel um, a lot of that sort of energy and kind of overwhelming frustration and grief for some of the people that I work with Mm. into what can we do better? Mm -hmm. So at bright point, we are currently, you know, I we're shifting our language. You know, I talked about how we are just saying parents instead of birth parents. And even that gives me a way to direct this kind of like, Oh, it's so heavy. What I do, this is what I'm doing. This is how I can make change, even if it's in our very small world, even if it's in just this conversation, mm-hmm. right? You will walk away, um, you know, having learned something, having to, you know, learn to maybe say parents instead. And that, that for me um, is huge. That really helps me to carry the weight of what we're working with because I know that I'm doing something about it and I'm impacting change it's the in some way. Things. It's not like. Yes. The instant things. Yes. I really appreciate you being honest, saying like sometimes are better than others. And I also like that you guys sit in the space that you're not trying to fix or it's okay. It's okay. Right. Um, the bad, the heavy, you're mm-hmm. accepting of what it is, like this very realistic thing. Because it's and, not okay. Yeah. It's not okay. Yeah. It's not okay that, that, you know, these beautiful children are experiencing these things. It's not okay that their parents experience those things when they themselves were beautiful, precious children. And um, in order to create space for change, we have to create space for the hard too. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add to this conversation that I may not have touched on? Um, I think... I will. So I will leave it with a phrase that we use um, in our trainings at work, actually. So I'm one of the trainers for our trauma 101 training as well for our new staff. And one of the things that we say at the very end is be curious, right? Be curious. What what can I do? What can I do with this information now that I have? Can I share it with somebody that I know? Can I read a book? Can I, you know, help somebody else process, you know, wow, that was just really hard for you and sit with it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say be curious, right? Be curious about our systems. Be curious about the way that things work. Be curious about, you know, bills that are in our legislative system that may be shifting funding from programming. Um, Be curious and ask questions of the schools and the systems that you interact with and how are they trauma-informed And, um, you know, be curious about what's driving things for the people that you interact with daily. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. This project was supported in whole by the Illinois Criminal Justice Information Authority.